You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. In preparing for today, um, there were several things I, I really had a hard time preparing because what we've been doing in Global Sunday School is we're going through the New Life Church Missions Matrix. Uh, just as a quick recap, because I'm sure many of you don't know what our matrix looks like, we have three tiers. And the first tier is what we call a values matrix. What are the things that we as a church are going to focus on? It helps us stay very focused on who we want to work with, what we want to do around the world, what we believe God has commissioned us to do. And it also empowers us to say no to the things that we don't believe uh, because we are not the church. We are a part of the church. We are a part of the body. We're not the entire body. So New Life Church will never do everything around the world. We will do our part as a member of the body of Christ. And so the matrix looks like this. The first value that we have is an internal value, and it says we want to introduce everybody at New Life Church to a missions experience. Now, so for some of you, this may be it. Mill Sunday School and this month of missions may be your missions experience. I hope it's not the apex of your journey. I hope you decide to go to a country, and there are many reasons for that, and we'll explore some of that a little bit today, and maybe next week more on a heartfelt level, okay? But then we have five expressive values. The first one is what we believe is a methodology in Scripture of going to the Jew first. It is not a Zionistic approach to saying we just love Jews because they are Jews. It is a conscious effort to take the gospel wherever we go, whether it's China, Africa, India, it doesn't matter where we go. If there is a Jewish contingency in that demographic of the world, we want to take the gospel to them first. Okay, and there's a, there's a whole teaching that we did a few weeks ago. If you want to know more about that, you can pick up the CD uh, at Melissa and understand why we take that approach. But then we come to two core values that really define our mission's DNA, okay? And that's church planting leadership training as a singular, singular value. We believe unless we train leaders and plant churches, uh, we will not be able to harness the harvest that is coming in. The second value for us that is critical is the plight of widows and orphans around the world. And so really, everything we do should hinge on those two factors, leadership training with church planting and the plight of widows and orphans. But then we have three other values, strategic initiatives among the unreached and unengaged, and that's what we're going to talk about today, because in Global Sunday School, we've addressed each one of these values, and now it's the turn for looking at the globe and where do we do strategic initiatives and why, okay? Then the uh, fourth value is the sanctity of human life, looking at um, genocide, human trafficking, and um, the sanct and, and uh, genocide, human trafficking, and the plight of the unborn. Okay, so let me see if I got them all. So it's going to the Jew first, leadership training, widows and orphans, strategic initiatives among the unreached and unengaged, and the sanctity of human life. Okay, and so that is our grid. Okay. But in preparing for today, I, I really struggled because I wondered how much we should really dialogue and talk about our own reality, talk about our own um, position of saying, we hear Christ. How many of you believe God speaks to you? Okay, and, and this is, 
I've spoken to so many people over the last few weeks, and they say, God told me this, and God told me that, and God told me this. And I'm sitting there half the time thinking to myself, God did not tell you that. I'm serious. And, and, and we have to, in our generation, I think the whole issue, and this is a concern for me, is the words of God, the fact that the Almighty Father speaks to us is a very serious thing. And for us to say God speaks to me as though it is the God card I pull, I think we don't really weigh the weight of what we are saying. I mean, I will not say God said to me unless I am 100% sure the Almighty Father said that to me. Now, it's okay to say, I, I feel like the Lord's leading me. I feel like, but our feelings are so swaying. You know, I, I've spoken to individuals that say, God is saying to me, don't work. Really? I have a job offer, but I just feel right now I'm in a season where God says to me, don't work. And I don't question that. But if you're going to make that statement, then I hope you have submitted that statement to the Word of God. You've submitted it to leadership and counsel. If you're married, that you and your spouse you know, are in unity. Those are the layers of, of challenging whether God is speaking to us. Or else, the, the, the one that trumps it all is when God physically appears to you and writes on the wall. I mean, if you can bring me a little tablet and say, God wrote this on my wall. I mean, done deal. You know, I mean, there's no argument. But it is so hard for us in Christianity to have honest dialogue one with another when we enter into a conversation and one party says, God said. Because there's nothing I can say or anybody else can say in the conversation. I mean, if God told you, okay, done, deal, who can, who can even talk about it? And so what I want us to do in dialoguing about missions is look at the things that God truly said. And how does God speak? So my first question to you is, how does God speak? Okay, this is open dialogue, Sunday school. Okay, Scripture, that's the number one. That's the number one thing you rely on. If you sense God speaking to you, you take whatever your discernment is and you submit it to the Word of God. And if you cannot find it, an example in the Word of God, in context, and I'm going to take a verse that says one thing completely out of context and make it look like God spoke. In context, Model what Scripture has said to us. If there's an explicit model in Scripture, then you can say, God spoke to me because here it is in the Bible. If Scripture is not clear on it, then what is the next step? If Scripture is not, like for instance, what, like the Ten Commandments, that's pretty clear. Okay? Don't kill, don't steal. That's pretty clear. But now, what about things that are kind of not clear in Scripture? Say that? Okay, submit it to authority. But actually, before we submit things to authority, here is another layer of scriptural interpretation. We look at what scripture implies. So the first level is what scripture emphatically states. 
The next level is what Scripture overwhelmingly implies. Okay? And then we submit it to spiritual authority. We submit it to the body. We submit it to a multitude of counselors. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of bring that. has nothing to do with the teaching today. But I just wanted to bring that into the context because I feel such a burden in our generation. If we're going to be honest about what God's called us to do and what God has said to me to do, we have to weigh my actions in light of that. If God says it, why are we not responding? And I hear people say to me all the time, and, and I'm guilty of this, all of us are, God said X, Y, Z. Five years later, we have not responded to X, Y, Z of what God said. And so either God is not speaking as much as we think He's speaking, or we're people living in consistent disobedience. And it's time we become serious and quiet and silent before the face of God to really hear what He's speaking and revert ourselves back into the Scripture and say, God, what are you saying to us? What are you saying into our generation? And what is our responsibility? Okay? So what I want to talk about today, um, and, and here's the way I teach, for those of you who don't know. You can interrupt at any point in time and put up your hand. Try not to ask the most difficult question in the last 30 seconds of the class. There's someone here, I won't say who, who has a habit of doing that. Pete, we love you. Um, okay, but here's the deal. I love questions. I love dialogue. If we don't get through everything today, that's fine. Um, I would rather have dialogue so that I know I am teaching or hitting on something that you want to hear rather than plowing through some PowerPoint on things that you really find boring and uninteresting, okay? So if this gets really boring for any of you, let's reroute, okay? But what I want to talk about is the Great Commission. Where does the Great Commission start? Or how does it start? Okay, it starts here. Okay, I heard it somewhere. Go! Go! How many of you have gone? Okay, how many of you have not gone? How many of you plan to go? <laughs> okay, here's the deal that, I, that, that I've seen in the 20 plus years of doing this. We have every excuse imaginable on earth not to go. And the question for me becomes an honest one, not, not the question of, oh, I'm just, exasperated because people don't go, but an honest question I have to ask and you have to ask, not why should I go, but why do I not want to go? I mean, I think for, if you spend this week, if we leave right now and all you do this week is answer this question for yourself, why do I not want to go? You would have made strides in your Christianity unlike anything you've ever believed. Because it will alter your perspective on Scripture. Because listen, this, this book, Genesis through Revelation, is a book of going. You cannot show me one chapter in that book that does not show the model of going. 
And yet, this is the hinge pin that the enemy uses to keep us captivated because I don't have the resources, I don't have the time, it's not convenient. And we have all these excuses that, that compel us to stay, but we don't have a more compelling argument that forces us to go. And unless your argument to go is more compelling than your argument to stay, you'll never go. And in my world, in our world of watching hours and hours of stories and, and hearing people's hearts cry in the nations, the single most compelling reason I'll tell you why you need to go is this. You are the only mouthpiece the nations have to tell their story. You see, and the longer we make going about us, the longer we'll stay. The sooner we, we, we understand that going is not about me, it's not about you, but it's about some voiceless individual somewhere in the world who's crying out just to be heard. And it's about them. You become their advocate to people who have the power to change their reality. The video Coney came out this week. It's the fastest hitting video in the history of YouTube, Vimeo, and the internet. Released on Wednesday, it's already got over several hundred million hits. Because someone went and created a media presentation to raise a voice for those who are the voiceless. And New Life Church, if we don't go with a motivation to say, God, we want to be a voice for the voiceless. Our motivation is wrong. So short term missions, all the guys going to South Africa, it's not about you. But you're going to meet people in poverty. You're going to meet orphans. You're going to meet people in desperate need. And you're going to come back and tell their story. You're going so that their voice can be heard. Okay? So that was what I struggled with this week. But so the Great Commission starts with go. So let's read the Great Commission together. Um, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, and this is how we read it in our suburban west. Settle down in the suburbs. Live a good Christian life. Raise good kids and tell your neighbors about Jesus, but only if they ask you first. I mean, that's how we, that's how we live the Great Commission. But it reads, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. And so why go? I'm kind of a little bit ahead of my, my message. But let's watch this little video. Oh, there's not, okay, now I said this. Matthew said, we are obese with knowledge and anorexic with service. Each person in this room right now could pastor a church in Africa successfully. Each person, and if you stand when I stand and you look across this room, each and every single person in this room has more Bible knowledge than 95% of the pastors in Africa. And many of those pastors pastor over 100 churches. Each one of you 
have more knowledge right now to pastor more than 100 churches in Africa, more knowledge than 95% of the pastors in Africa. So watch this little video. I'm going to back up so that he's ready with the sound. Das hier ist mein Sektor. Das hier ist das wichtigste Gerät des Küstenwächter. Das Gerät und das Gerät. Überlebensradar. Mayday, Mayday. Hello, can you hear us? Can you hear us? Can you... Over. We are sinking. We are sinking. Hello? This is the German Coast Guard. What are you thinking about? I, okay, I used to use that little video because my accent was so heavy that people couldn't understand me. And so, but I thought in kind of an ironic, funny way, this is the story of the world. The world is out there screaming at us. We're sinking, we're sinking. And we're just sitting here thinking. And the world is saying, stop thinking, we're sinking. Come rescue us. And people, this is such a simple thing. And so let's look at the world a little bit. Revelation 7, 9, I'm going to fly through a few scriptures just to give you the biblical foundation uh, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And I'm not throwing these scriptures up just at random. What's the power of the scripture? It's basically this. I don't know what your end time theology is, but I'll tell you what mine is. Until every nation is represented before the throne of God, Jesus is not coming back. Because unless Jesus gets worship expressed in every possible language and culture, he won't receive all glory. The ultimate seal of all glory is the fact that every expression of glory goes to God. And if there are people that don't know him and don't know how to worship him, he'll relent until every nation and tribe and tongue worships him. And so the Bible says before his throne were people from every ethnic, every ethnos on earth. Zephaniah 2.11, the Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the land. The nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in its own land. So the argument that, hey, global migration and globalization, we don't have to go anymore. The Bible's very clear. People will worship God in their own land. Zechariah 9.10, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, so God is a God that will globalize the world with the gospel. So if we look at all Christianity by 1900, and many of the global guys have seen this, but bear with me, 80% of the global church in 1900 was Caucasian. By 2005, only 34% of the global church was Caucasian. And I think by now, it's probably somewhere between the 25 to 27% range by 2011. 
we represent less than a quarter of the global church. 75 to 80% of the global church is ethnically different than us. And that is a beautiful thing. Because if you've ever traveled and had Lebanese food, you'll understand why. There is no greater meal on God's green earth than Lebanese food. I will guarantee you that. And so the kingdom is rich because we experience the diversity of culture. But Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then it says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And here's the beautiful part. It says, The zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. And here's the bottom line. The pressure is off us. God's saying, listen, I'm going to increase my kingdom. It will never stop increasing as a matter of fact. And I'm not going to depend on you to do it because I know how you rely on your feelings. I'm going to do this. My zeal, my passion will accomplish this. Whether you participate with me or not, I'm going to do this. And we see God doing this. I'll show you here in just a minute how God's doing this around the world. He reveals himself to people without a single human participating. But God says, listen, I'll prove to you how passionate I am about this and how faithful I am to this thing. If you want to come along for the ride and the journey, I want to invite you to participate with me and be a beneficiary of me making the nations my footstool. And we get to participate with something God's doing that cannot fail, that will always succeed. I have never heard one person come back from a mission trip without a story. I've never heard one person come back from a mission trip and go, that was the biggest waste of my time. Never. Why? Because you participate with God in something God's doing. 1 Chronicles 12, 32 the men of Issachar understood the times they knew in and knew what Israel should do. Acts 13.36, for when David had served God in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his fathers. Okay, and so this is a scriptural foundation for me in walking into what we're walking into. I don't care whether you're sitting in this room and you're like the Bullards who are somewhere between 60 and somewhere 70 or whatever. And they are so passionately still flying to Europe and spreading the gospel and doing stuff and bugging me every week because they care for another missionary that we've got to reach out to. They're so passionate. And they're in their 17. And I don't care if you're 17 sitting in here saying, well, God, where do I start? I just want to be someone like David. Where one day it can be written about me and about you where it says, we serve God in our generation. May that be the mark of our lives that we actually served God in our generation before we pass away and pass along. If we learn from the past looking at missions, the expansion of the gospel, the greatest expansion of the gospel geographically happened through the student volunteer movement in the late 1800s early 1900s, students, just like many of you, took the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it was the greatest expansion of the gospel geographically. We saw the greatest numerical expansion of the gospel 
through the 1040 prayer movement, which actually started here in this church. That initiative started here with people like Louise Bush, um, Peter Wagner, Fred Markert, Beverly Bakis, and many others. And that catapulted the modern-day church to believe that maybe by the year 2000 we can reach every tribe, nation, and tongue. We didn't succeed. And unfortunately, since 2000, our mission efforts have dramatically decreased because we were not in it for the long haul. We were in it for the next 10 years. And if it didn't work, we were going to go into maintenance mode. And so we're in a generation now where we have to re-get uh, the energy back into the thing. Okay? Yes. Pete. Pete, Pete by the way, I love you, bud. I just love giving you a hard time. Okay, hold on. We need to get your microphone. Where's the floating microphone? There we go. Now to the big. Hello? Okay, there we go. Okay. I want to tie what you're saying now to what you said at the beginning, and I'm wondering what you think about this. From personal experience with 1040 stuff, um, it'd be very easy for us to. Uh, look at scripture and convince ourselves, well, going could mean this or that or the next thing. I, I don't necessarily need to, but I felt a call of God on my life to do X, Y, Z. And unfortunately, from personal experience, there are many churches and even Christian leaders that we would respect who would say, you'll never succeed. Forget it. We'll never put any resources into that. Or, that's too dangerous. You're just going to die if you go over there. And literally, the status quo tends to stick where it is. And it is only when we are recognizing that we've got to follow what God tells us, not what people would say, that a transformation and a breakthrough can happen. Yeah, so the question is... And so how... the question... It, it, do we have to... Oh, yeah. Do we have to be careful about... The whole listening to authority of people yeah, here, and convincing bottom, ourselves about scripture. Here's the bottom line: when people when people have any discussion with me, and, and uh, I talked to I don't know if you know Carl Medeiros. Carl Medeiros and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and he said, "How do you answer people that ask you really controversial questions about the Middle East?" And, I, and I'm kind of going to use that answer to answer you. Um, I said, "Well, Carl, I ask people first of all." Are you asking me a theological question, a sociological question, an economical question, or a political question? Because depending on the premise from which you frame your question will, will determine a holistic response from me. Does that make sense? So if we talk about Israel and Palestinian conflict, if we want to get into a political debate, then I can give you my political opinion that may have absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. However, if you're asking me about Israel and Palestine from a scriptural perspective, that's a whole different ballgame. And so the same thing, why should we go? Well, are you asking or are you contesting going from a humanistic perspective of inconvenience 
And that's why I said, in the beginning, if you leave here and you don't do anything else but the resolve for yourself, why should I go? If that argument is not stronger than the argument, why should I stay? Then you have not settled in your heart yet the gravity of what God is saying to us. The gravity of going. The com- I mean, it's not a suggestion, people. God didn't say, hey, now, listen, I know you're busy. And somehow in your business, if you could consider maybe working this in, it might be a great, wonderful option for your life. However, don't no pressure, people. God didn't take that approach. This, we say, God told me, you're going to be my wife or husband or whatever. And then that doesn't happen. But we're so ready to say, God told me this. Now, I'm telling you, each one of you have one of these books called the Bible on your table or at home or whatever. Bestseller in human history or on your iPhone. Okay? The Word of God spoken through the generations to us as a command says, go. Is it that difficult? There should be no contestation here. And so when people come up with their excuses for inconvenience and safety, it's like, obviously your life is still your own if you're concerned about your safety. You have not died to Christ. You're not willing to pay the price. And that's a whole different thing you need to sort out, honestly. If it's inconvenient for you, well, the cross wasn't convenient either. Who do you live for? For yourself or for the kingdom of heaven? And so these are big questions we need to deal with in our own selves. And especially the younger people here, if you can do this at an early stage in your journey, it will change your reality for the next 50, 70 years of your life. I'm telling you, you sit down with people like Dickie Chong. You sit down with people like the Willises. You sit down with people like the Bullards. You sit down with some of these older generational folks here who made decisions to follow Christ when they were young, and you hear their stories. And I'm telling you, you start not avoiding the older generations, but you start meeting with these men and women, and you hear and dream vicariously through the success of what God has done in their lives. And it gives you passion and say, God, I want to be like Dickie Chong. When I'm 60, when I'm 70, I want to be like the Bullards. I wish I have that passion when I'm 70. If you know that couple, if you don't meet that couple, you're missing out. If you're a young person, you better meet that couple. And you see the mission's passion and the fire for God in them. And I'm telling you, if you're 70 and you have that passion and fire, you will have a life well lived. And God will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We have to live lives of passion and lives that we want to make a difference in our generation. So let's look at our world, the 1040 window. I have about 20 minutes to do about a two-hour teaching. So let's fire through this. Missions reality. Presently, more than 70% of Christian effort and ministry is directed at people who already profess to be Christians, while less than 5% of our total missionary activity is focused on those who have never once had a chance to hear about the good news of the gospel. 
The 1040 window, this is what we're looking at. More than 4 billion people in 67 nations. Why? Why what? Why, why do we send so little missionary activity over there? Oh, I mean, that answer has so many layers, uh, Dean. One, culturally, we don't relate. But the majority of that demographic represents a Muslim, and I'll show you right now, a Muslim and a Buddhist and a Hindu religious reality. For us, we're not comfortable talking to Buddhists. We're not comfortable talking to Muslims. I mean, maybe Buddhists. I would say Buddhists are probably the easier, Hindus the next, and Muslims the worst. Because we're so driven by what the media says that we forget at the end of the whole Islamic crapshoot, whatever you want to call it, there's a person that God created and He wants to redeem. We forget all of that. We look at at Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, and we go like, terrorists that's trying to kill us. And you forget, there's a sweet lady at the end of that that is just seeking the affirmation of a loving father because she's never known a God who, and we don't know how to relate cross-culturally. And so, listen to me. I don't care how many foreigners live here in Colorado Springs. We don't reach them. So don't give me that argument. Get on a plane and go. You have to get out of your demographic because here's the thing is, we think we can evangelize or we can share the love of Jesus in our own demographic to foreigners. And yes, we should. We should try. But the problem with staying in our own demographic is we're still positioned in our own demographic. It still comes from my vantage point to you. When I leave my demographic, all of a sudden, I am either in your demographic or we are on neutral ground and we hear each other from a neutral perspective. And most missionaries go where they're already Christians because it's safe, it's proven, it's hard to pioneer. Yes, ma'am. No. Um, we can, you can come see us personally if you have a desire to go. It's not hard. I mean, I'll just tell you that I have seen tens of thousands of people where I facilitated their mission trips, I've never had a single person not go because of money. Tens of thousands of people. For over 20 years now, I've seen people go and not a single person has ever gone not because of money. You see, the enemy will tell us, oh, you can't have money to do this. Again, let's not forget this is God's passion. This is God's thing. He'll provide for you. I was a full-time missionary for several years. I raised more money as a full-time missionary that I'm getting paid as a pastor at New Life Church. <laughs> okay. So, so raising money is just a thing. 
People, you see, again, let me, uh, I don't want to digress, but let me just say this about fundraising, okay? Fundraising, if you, there are two rules in fundraising that will make it very easy for you. Number one, it's not about you. If you raise money for you, you'll fail. But if you raise money for the bigger idea, the picture of, I am going as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven to preach the gospel. If that is why you're raising money, it'll come. It'll come. And number two, people are not your source. God is your source. And God purely uses people. And it will be the most unlikely people you have ever thought that will help you go do what God's called you to do. I knew a guy. I still know a guy. He's a great friend. Older gentleman who sold his computer company for several seven, several hundred million dollars, okay? Very close personal friend. And I said, man, I'm doing this mission thing. He never supported me a dime. But every time I came into town, he took me to the most expensive golf course to play golf and all this. And to him, he was, and I loved it because when I came home, I got to do stuff I could never pay to do. But he lavished and loved on me. But I never defined my relationship with him based on whether he supported me or not. Because I knew God was my supply. And whether God used a guy who had $400 million in the bank or a guy who had $40 in the bank, God was going to do it. And so fundraising is a God thing. It's not a me thing, okay? Okay, let's move on. 1040 window. More than 4 billion people in 67 nations, 43 of the 50 worst nations in the world for persecution. Nations like Sudan. Every major non-Christian religion is based here. Islam in 45, Buddhism in 12, Hinduism in 2, tribalism in 2, Christianity in 4, Judaism in 1, and atheism in 1. Most have never heard the gospel message. And then if we look at the 1040 window and beyond, these are the strategic zones. And I know I'm going to fly through this and a lot of people say to me, well, it just looks like you kind of crafted the globe into seven zones. Um, Pretty much, but there's a reason why each zone is important. Yes, sir. Yes. But here, here, let me encourage you with this, okay? Yes, we are being disobedient as a global church. But, but here, as in, well, only you can answer that question. I think if you're going, if you're doing all you can do, just be obedient to what Scripture says. I can't clump individual disobedience or obedience to the credit of the group. We like to do that. We like to celebrate vicariously through what a missionary does, but we never participate in anything like that. And so, as I will say this, America is probably and continues to be, and I hope continues to be, the strongest missions nation in the world from a resource perspective. Um, when we look at financial resources, not necessarily people at the moment. People, South America is probably becoming, and, and uh, Asia is becoming stronger than we are in sending people. But we still contribute 60 to 65% of global resources into the missions world. Okay? So financially, the U.S. Uh, specifically is the strongest voice in the missions world. But we need people to go. We need the next generation to do what the generations before us did, okay? So the strategic zones, Sahel and South Africa, Europe, China, Islamic core, Northern India, Central Asia, and Latin America. 
There are seven zones of the world for very specific reasons that are strategic and we have to look at engaging with or in. Okay, I'm going to fly through this. Why South and Sahel Africa? Sahel Africa is that part of Africa north of the equator. It's called the Islamic core. These, uh, the black line is the dividing line in Africa between Christianity and Islam. Really, Islam looks like a question mark if you had to draw it out on the periphery of Africa. So if you started here kind of where Sierra Leone is on the west coast and you drew a question mark coming down the coast, that's kind of the flow of Islam. But here, top, top 10 Christian countries in the world, 1900. Not a single country on the list was African. By 2005, two of the top 10 were African countries. By 2010, still two. And by 2054 of the top 10 nations in the world, Christian nations will be African countries. Okay? The church is growing fastest in Africa than anywhere else on earth. Population 1 billion. Here are some of the issues in Africa. 74% of global AIDS victims live in Africa. Think about that. Three quarters of global AIDS. Now we're talking about AIDS. We're not even talking about malaria. We're not talking about anything else. It's the greatest continent on earth that relates to poverty, but also natural resource, kind of a juxtaposition. Most natural resources in the poorest continent on earth. A lot of persecution. But here's the good news. Miracles of Muslims getting saved are rampant. There are more Muslims getting saved in Africa miraculously than anywhere else on earth. And here is why. I lived in Africa. I am African. We believe in the supernatural unlike any other culture I know on earth. I mean, Africans with tribalism, ancestral worship, they see demons. They see angels. I mean, it's not like talk. I mean, physically showing up angels. Physically showing up demons. People in front of your face changing shapes. That's their reality. Okay? So when Jesus appears to them, it's not a shock. And when he teaches them, I heard a missionary say to me, we went into a village, an unreached village in Africa, and the tribe was gathering. And as I was walking into the village, somebody ran up to me and said, welcome, we've been waiting for you. And he was shocked. He said, what are you talking about? He said, come, come, we'll tell you. And they all gathered in anticipation. And this missionary said, uh, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you some good news. And they said, yes, we know. We know. We've been waiting for you for a long time. What took you so long? And he's perplexed. He said, what's going on? And the village chief said, every night we gather around as, as a village. And Jesus appears to us and teaches us. And he said, says to us every time, I am sending someone to confirm these things that I'm teaching you and to bring you the book that will confirm everything I've spoken to you. Now, in our Western reality, that doesn't sound real. It sounds like Chronicles of Narnia fantasy stuff. But that is the God you serve. And unless you leave Colorado Springs, you will not see that. 
I'm not saying we shouldn't reach our city. Absolutely. But this is what I believe. We will more effectively reach our city when we we get to experience what God is capable of doing through us and seeing it somewhere else. You are not going to see Jesus appear around every corner in a village teaching them about the gospel here in Colorado Springs. And so I'm not knocking Colorado Springs. You'll never, Matthew's one of my best friends. We work together hand in hand. I believe we need to go. And as we go, we need to come back and contextualize and do everything in the city. But people, if you want to have more of God, if you want to experience more of God, maybe you have tapped out what God's doing here. I can guarantee you God is doing things in India that will blow the socks off of you. When you watch an Indian charming snakes and things going on, just that little experience will rock your world. And then to watch God deliver that guy right there in front of your eyes. How many of you have literally pulled someone out of a wheelchair and watched them walk? I've done that. It, is, it has changed my reality. Because there is a different kind of something happening in the nations that will give us the keys to our own city. Human trafficking is rampant in Africa. Nigeria is in the top four countries now, contributing to the sexual trafficking issue, and is the only non-European country in the top four. Africa is a gateway for China. China is pretty much buying up Africa because of the resources. Businesses missions is running rampant there. Europe, the largest church in Europe is run by an African pastor. Actually, the four largest European churches are pastored by Africans. Southern Africa, it has become the logistical operational headquarters for fanatical Islam in the Southern Hemisphere. So we have to look at these regions of the world because God is doing something there. And that is why we as a church are focusing there. Okay? The Sahel region in Africa, that's the borderline between Christianity and Islam. One of the greatest movements of the Holy Spirit in the last five years, I just told you about that. Islam wants to mobilize Africa for their global army. And Africans make great soldiers in the Islamic army. And this is why. Islam as a religion is a religion with very low value for human life. Okay, I mean, does everybody kind of get that? Okay, Africa is a continent with all its peril, is just a natural fit for Islam because Africans have had to learn to deal with the loss of human life. My cousin's a pastor in South Africa. He does about 80 funerals a year and about 30 weddings. Death because of AIDS, malaria, crime, violence, child soldier issues, all that. Death and the loss of human life has just numbed the African soul. Okay? So it becomes a very easy fit for the whole agenda of Islam. Some of the greatest persecution in the world is in that region. And Muslims are miraculous. Can say if I said that? So here's an article. And maybe we'll just do Africa today. I don't know. We don't have a ton of time. This is an article. There's a recent surprising report on, a, on Islam in Africa in a major... American intelligence publication. Okay, so this is a high-ranking Libyan Islamic scholar and jihadi strategist who says the following. 
He reveals that Muslims are, are converting to Christianity in Muslim Northern Africa at a phenomenal rate. Sheikh Ahmad Al-Qahtani, the president of the Companions Lighthouse for the Science of Islamic Law in Libya, which is an institution specializing in training fundamentalist imams and Islamic preachers, describes the overall situation with what he calls apostates. Okay, so basically, bottom line, a high credible voice in the world of Islam, fanatical Islam, says the following. He says, the number of Muslims in Africa has rapidly diminished down to 316 million, half of whom are Arabs in North Africa. When we realize that the entire population of Africa is 1 billion people, we see that the number of Muslims has diminished greatly from what it was in the beginning of the last century. As to how that happened, well, every hour, this is him talking, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every year, 6 million Muslims convert to Christianity. These numbers are very large indeed. As from what I have heard from reliable sources, 6 million may be too low. Reliable accounts say that 100,000 North African Muslims convert to Christianity every single day. Katani says Muslims should build schools before they build mosques in order to build the worshiper before the building. When asked why, he replied, and I love this little quote, to stop the dangerous Christian missionary octopus. And out of the mouth of the enemy comes the truth of what God's doing around the world. This is what you can be a part of, people. This is what we can be a part of. And you can choose to do this just for two weeks out of your life in a year. And I'm telling you, it will alter your reality so significantly that whether you become a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, you'll never be the same again. There's Dr. Larry O'Connell, one of our new lifers, currently in Afghanistan. He's a full-time doctor, but every year he goes to Uganda and Afghanistan and he keeps asking, where else can I go? Where else can I go? Yes, he's a doctor here, but he got a hold of this. And he's changing it every year for the rest of his life somewhere around the world. Okay, Europe. We'll fly through Europe in three minutes and then we'll take a question. Looking at Europe, conquering of Europe will embolden Muslims. It is the battleground for the clash of civilization between Christianity and Islam. Europe has become the buffer zone between the East and the West. People over 30, and this is sad, okay? People over 30 in Europe are, for the most part, what strategists say, not strategic, okay? Because they have such an anti-God position that the amount of effort and time to reach people over 30 is just almost counterproductive. Okay, but, and Alice called Europe Eurabia, but the hope for Europe lies in the young people coming to Christ. And we're seeing a massive revival starting to happen in Europe and a redefining of Europe through the young people. And I believe as the young people come to Christ, those European young people will reach those over 30. Okay. Europe, rapidly declining population growth rate. Population growth rate should be 2.1%. Europe's population growth rate is like 1.2 or 1.3. Eurostat survey showed Poland's fertility rate to be the lowest uh, in the EU at 1.23 children per woman. Italy's fertility rate steadily plunged to 
the Muslim birth rate is three times higher than non-Muslims in Europe. We'll skip that. Muhammad is now the number one name given to newborn babies in Europe. Okay? That's since 2008, so for the last three years. Okay, top 10 Christian countries quickly. Six of the, seven of the top 10 in the 1900s were European. By 2005, only Germany remained. Germany is still on the list, but by 2050, not a single European country will be in the top 10 list. This is what Prince Charles says. Muslims and Christians have far more in common than they have differences. He said at an opening of an exhibition of Islamic art in London, so much attention is paid to the outward differences between the faiths, almost reflexively, this becomes translated into seemingly impenetrable divisions between people. Who has made the promo he has made the promotion of interfaith understanding one of his main interests. And basically what Charles is saying is let's stop arguing, let's coexist. Christians and Muslims together. The UN says Europe will be 55% Muslim by 2040 and 75% Muslim by 2055. And of course, Europe is massively wealthy. These are a few photos out of the streets of London a couple of years ago. Actually, this was in 2004. Okay, so, so take that into consideration. Seven years ago or eight years ago, this was happening in the streets of London. Can you see that? This is one of the poetic pictures for me. You have two police officers protecting the people who basically say will destroy your society. Such a poetic picture. Okay? Europe is becoming Islamified. Um, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to read this article. It's a very good article. You can get it from me if you want. It's called The Rape of Europe. And it's basically saying how Europe has given up. It's a, a Dutch uh, journalist that wrote this article. Let's have a couple questions since I obviously didn't get through everything. But let's have a couple questions if you have any. And did, it, did, did this help? Did it hit any chords? Absolutely. Afghanistan is the second fastest growing church on earth. Percentage-wise. Not numbers, but percentage-wise. Um, Iran is the fastest growing church on earth. Um, and, and, we'll, and if we, I do, if I decide to do phase two of this next week, we'll look at the Islamic core with Afghanistan, Iran, uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, a little bit of that. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Well, because we're the strongest church. 
Were the strongest church in the world really getting this? I mean, China's getting it, you know, as well, the Chinese churches, but the Chinese church does not have the resources to send their people because for the most part, the Chinese church started among the migrant village workers. So you're more uneducated, not wealthy individuals, for the most part in China form the majority of the church. Some of that has shifted in the last, I would say, five to ten years, where now you see a lot more happening in the cities of China, and some of that resource base is starting to come in. But it's going to take China probably 10 to 20 years to get the resource base, because also in China, there's a little bit of a, a separation of peoples between those in the cities and those in the villages. You know, people in the cities that are part of a church don't necessarily just want to say, hey man, we're just working with this church in the village. It's kind of a little bit of a pride issue saving face because they're less than we are. So it's going to take a little while for the Chinese church to integrate. So those going through the Back to Jerusalem movement are for the most part migrant poor Chinese people that go. We are still the, I would say, nation on earth that has crossed the boundaries between poor and rich within the church for the most part. And we'll support anybody. We'll support anybody in our church that wants to go and be a career missionary, regardless of skin, you know, race, color, age, you know, anything like that. You know, if they're called and we believe they've submitted to leadership, we'll send them. China's a little bit further behind. Yeah, but you're, but this, you're doing exactly what I said earlier. You're talking to me about a political position rather than a theological position. As a theological position, position, the church in the West is still the strongest resource entity within funding the efforts of the gospel around the world. It's changing, you know, and faster than we think. I mean, South America, Brazil is becoming one of the wealthiest nations on earth. And they're also one of the fastest sending nations. So those two components combined makes Brazil and South America kind of an anomaly a little bit in the journey. Rhonda. Sending, if you're talking about sending, you, you have to talk to Brazil. What's that? Okay, she's saying from a strategic perspective, in my opinion, from a strategic perspective, what are the two, who are the top two nations that we should equip to help send saints? Um, the strongest sending nation is, is Brazil. Uh, see, and, and also, here's the thing about Latin Americans. They make the best missionaries. Nobody on earth does not love the Latinos. I married one. Okay? Everybody loves Latinas. So they make, they make easy missionaries. Muslims love the Brazilians. They love them. And their cultures are very warm and friendly and there aren't any barriers. They make great missionaries. Um, some of your Asian nations, a little more difficult. They, they, they struggle to relate cross-culturally because especially like China was, China was isolated from the world for 40, 50 years. Completely isolated. 
So now, even though they have such a passion to send tons of missionaries, their missionaries have no clue how to connect cross-culturally. And so they start Chinese churches in the Muslim world. And so that's a little bit of, we have to go help train them in cross-cultural assimilation. Mr. Bullard. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, we have, if you, if you say, listen, I feel compelled to do something, but I don't know what. Come talk to us. Let's at least have coffee together. Talk about what, you know, we may not have all the answers, but at least we can talk together and determine a next step. Okay. But I would love for everybody in this room at some point in your life to just step over that precipice of fear, anxiety, excuse, whatever, and go. Just go one time. Do it for yourself. Don't do it for me. Go one time to a nation that's so different from anything you know. Africa, Muslim world. You know, don't go to Canada. I mean, I love the Canadians. I'm not saying, I mean, if God calls you, then go. But I'm just saying, it's just too much like us. Go somewhere where it's so different so it can rock your world significantly. If you want to really rock your world, go to northern India. That will shake you like nothing you've ever known. Okay? Okay, so let's pray and then we'll convene here again next week and we'll do either part two or if I get completely sidetracked this week, we'll do something else. Okay? So, Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you for the family of New Life Church. God, I pray blessings. Uh, I pray blessings on everybody here. And God, I pray that your kingdom will come, your will will be done through our lives, into the nations. And God, I do pray a favor and a, a special blessing on our church today with the Move the Mountain offering. I pray that you will inspire each one of us to participate and to contribute, God, to relieving the debt of this house so that we can do more for the sake of your kingdom in the days to come. We bless you and we honor you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.